Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today is one of my favorite people in innovation, humble, authentic, incredibly smart and an amazing author. Her last episode with, with us was one of the most popular despite as I was just saying, despite the poor sound of that episode, it did extremely well and still gets hundreds of listeners every week. Today, we're going to talk about her latest book. And rather than than read the introduction to that book, I thought I'd give you a teaser by reading the titles of some of the chapters because I absolutely love how they're titled and the content of each of these chapters. Snow melts from the edges. Early warnings. On the lookout for weak signals, defining your arena customers, not hostages. What must be true? Creating a plan to learn fast. Galvanizing the organization. How innovation proficiency defangs the organizational antibodies. Love that one, Rita. How leadership can and must learn to see around corners. Seeing around corners in your own life. She is with us to share her brilliant new book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. She is Rita McGrath. Rita, welcome back to the show. A pleasure to be here, Aidan. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you. I, I, I was telling you before the show, I read your work so deeply. It's, uh, it's more of a reference book because you have so such a deep experience of this, both as a practitioner, as an academic, and just as a great writer that you bring these deep, uh, deep stories and deep kind of backgrounds to life with brilliant analogies, as I mentioned there. But you dedicate this book to two very special women in your life. And I'd like to dedicate this episode to them if you would. So I'd like if you would say a small word to about both your mother, and indeed your daughter. Well, my mother was absolutely uh, brilliant. She was a microbiologist. Uh, she originally started out wanting to study large animals, so she wanted to do animal husbandry and was informed that women did not do that. And so she went from big animals to really, really, really tiny ones. She uh, ended up studying, uh, she became a bacteriologist and studied very, very small animals. And a little known fact about my mom is that um, she was part of the Yale. Uh, research center at the medical school there. And in her earliest work, did some of the groundwork for what later became a Nobel Prize winning research project on self-repairing DNA. Wow. Wow. And, and, and you mentioned also then, so you, you talk about, because this is core to so much of your work is recognizing what got you here, but then being very cognizant of what's going to bring you into the future. And you do that in the book in the dedication, because you also mentioned your daughter. Uh, Anne is, um, well, she's always been very interested in the public good and public uh, services. And so she uh, has built a career around that. And she's now um, uh, helping uh, not-for-profits uh, figure out their fundraising strategies so that they can have maximum impact. I said to you beforehand, your husband's Irish, so we're claiming both you and your daughter as one of our own, Rita. So Rita McGrath, great Irish name, drop the gunter for the moment for this episode anyway. But uh, <laughs> speaking of dedications, Rita, the forward was written by a fellow pioneer in disruption and innovation practice, your friend, Clayton Christensen. And to honor Clayton, Clayton, I took a small excerpt from that forward. It goes as follows. Innovation doesn't have to be a painful hit and miss effort. Though disruption is constantly on the horizon, managers don't need to be blind when charting their course. 
Seeing Around Corners, your book will help those of us who seek to better understand and even anticipate what innovation can bring us next. And I thought you might like to say a word about Clayton before we continue. So I first met Clay in the halls of the Harvard Business School, and I want to say it was 1995 or 96, when he was just starting out as an associate professor there. So he had fairly recently uh, published the Harvard Business Review article that presaged his 1997 book, um, The Innovator's Dilemma. And he, at the time, was doing a lot of consulting with Andy Grove, another of my business icons at uh, Intel. And I was brought to Harvard by a colleague who I uh, was giving a seminar there. And Clay came along and was just, just so warm and enthusiastic. And in later years, he would sometimes, uh, if I happened to be in the room, he'd introduce himself as a card-carrying member of the Rita McGrath fan club, which I always <laughs> thought was so incredibly generous of him. But, you know, the, the things that stand out about Clay are, you know, his kindness. He was unfailingly kind. Um his curiosity. And you may recall in his office, he had a, a little uh, signature on his desk that said anomalies welcome. And it had to do actually with a theory that never took off, which I think disappointed him, which was the theory of how theories come to be. And he had this idea that you, you develop a hypothesis about the future, and then you look for things that support the hypothesis, of course, but you also look for anomalies that challenge. And as you build your theory, you have this circular kind of almost approach to, you know, hypothesis testing, seeing how it fits developing anomalies and then um, and then you'd update your hypotheses so uh, very very interesting but yeah I mean uh, Clay and I our, our daughters both went to Barnard College um, and uh, we had a lot of, of intersections over the many years and I, I, I miss him as we say always in innovation innovation happens at the intersections which is where you guys connected and have created new intersections for the rest of us so Great little uh, mention there of, of Clayton Christensen, may he rest in peace. But moving on to this work that he wrote the foreword for, I wanted to dive in, read it with an excerpt that I love because it, it highlights an anchor of the book. And you mentioned there Andy Grove, and he is one of these business icons you mentioned. You said some years ago, Andy Grove introduced the concept of strategic inflection points in his landmark book, Only the Paranoid Survive. A strategic inflection point, he observed, is a time in the life of a business where its fundamentals are about to change. An inflection point is a change in the business environment that dramatically shifts some element of your activities, throwing certain taken-for-granted assumptions into question. And this next line is what I wanted to highlight. Someone, somewhere, sees those implications, but all too often they are not heard. And so many of our listeners, reader, are those people. And I often think of the Greek myth of Cassandra, the course that the curse that she she can predict the future, but nobody will hear her or she just talks gibberish. And so many are treated like Cassandra's. And I'd love if you'd unpack that reader, because it, it is a foundational element of this work. And indeed, in your previous work, the end of competitive advantage. I think one of the core realities that organizations grapple with is that the people that are closest to the phenomena that are changing are often not the people in the C-suite. They're not the people in the strategy 
process. They're not in the boardroom. They're out at the edges, as I say in the book, where the customer said something that was weird or, wow, a competitor came out of a place I didn't expect. And in many organizations, there's no natural logical path for that insight and those information pieces to get to the people that are making strategic decisions. And so I think one of the skills we have to get smarter about is how do I get that unfiltered information about what's really going on in an organization from the edges to where the decisions get made? Perhaps we should share some of the many triggers for those inflection points. You mentioned technological change, regulatory change, demographic change, social possibilities, and indeed new connections and political change. Perhaps we could share some of those. Certainly demographics is huge. Um, and I've written about this, which is we are really on the cusp of what I call a baby bust, <laughs> you know, between the pandemic and uh, the precariousness of so many family lives. Um, people are simply deciding not to enlarge their families or not to start families at all. And, you know, we could be seeing gaps in the birth rate of hundreds of thousands, uh, certainly in, in a large country like the US uh, and, and worldwide uh, in many of the developed countries of the world. And and that has predictable consequences. Some are not all that bad, right? So less environmental degradation. The children that are born have more parental time and more resources invested in their upbringing. But if you're thinking of demographics as predicting economic growth, for example, that has a negative consequence. So one of my clients is a company that makes products geared towards babies. And, and right now they're currently obsessed about environmental issues. So what do we do if single-use plastics are no longer available? And I said to them, well, what are you going to do if, you know, 10% of your consuming base disappears within the next three years? And they're like, what? We haven't really thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I think some of these things which are sort of obvious in blind in, in plain sight, but if you're not paying attention, right, you can easily miss them. I thought it would be useful to touch on f the four basic stages in the development of an inflection point, because there's a hype stage, a dismissive sta stage that frustrates so many innovators, an emergent stage, and indeed an, a maturity one. Yeah, so a great um, example would be the way that e-commerce made itself felt in the world. And you may remember back in the mid-90s when we first had the commercial browser of, of, of Netscape and then we eventually had uh, Microsoft's browser and we had, you know, human beings on an ordinary level could now access this technology that prior to that had really only been available to engineers and people working in the military, DARPA and people at universities. But now for the very first time, you could actually go online and visit a website. And this was a big deal back then. You know, it was very unusual. Um, and the hype was incredible, right? I've been back in 1995, a fortune writer laid out you know, the, the, the picture for today's e-commerce. So then what did we have? We had the dot-com uh, boom, right? But, you know, we have to remember the ecosystem back then was very incomplete. And so while people saw the implications and the potential for e-commerce, we didn't know how to pay for things over the internet. The way you accessed the internet, remember it was you dialed up, right? It was, you know, that thing, <laughs> um, and it was slow. And if your internet service provider, remember those categories? Um, if your internet service provider couldn't keep up, you'd get a busy signal. You know, people don't even remember this today. Um, and so there was all this hype and huge amounts of money going into, into the internet. 
and uh, culminating probably in the symbolic merger of America Online and Time Warner here in the U.S., which was the height of the uh, of the internet. Probably in the in the U.K. and Ireland, Boo. Remember Boo? (laughs) This sort of e-commerce platform that was supposed to change the world. Well, of course, that all crashed. And so everybody said, ah, right, see, that internet commerce thing was just a a hype. It was just a bubble. It wasn't real. But out of that early crash came survivors. Amazon survived. eBay survived. Um, You know, the early uh, providers of various e-commerce services survived. And they actually figured out viable business models that they could then commercialize. And that led to the real growth stage. So in the middle O's, what you started to see was the emergence of companies like Facebook and Google and um, eBay continuing to be relevant. Amazon certainly figuring out what its recipe for success was going to be. And so that really led to um, things like YouTube. You know, if you think about it, uh, 30 years ago, if you wanted to get a video message to tens of millions of people, you would have to be News Corp or or Time Warner. You know, you'd have to be a media empire with satellites in the air and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets behind that. Today, literally two, two people in a garage with a smartphone can get that video message out because YouTube has made it so inexpensive to both capture video and share it. And that's a really different set of assumptions you're working on than you were back in the age of massive numbers of assets required. We'll come to actually how to recognize some of those signals of change and how to not go after the buzz, as you call it. But that always reminds me, Rita, of the Buckminster Fuller quote that there's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly, which is why it's so damn counterintuitive that the signals of change that are there, you don't go and invest in them because you're kind of going, well, there's no market in that yet, but you don't know when the yet comes. And that's the big difficulty. But you mentioned there one of your clients being a, a baby company, you know, making products for babies. One of the others you talk about in the book is the hearing aid business. And I'd love if you'd share at a high level this example of harnessing an inflection point when the gales of disruption are blowing. Yeah, so the hearing aid business is actually quite fascinating. It, um, it, it, in most of the world, hearing aids are not considered to be actual medical devices. So, uh, a lot of uh, health systems don't don't cover them in the U.S. It's very difficult to get uh, payment for hearing aids. Uh, even in in Ireland and the U.K., you know, it's very difficult to uh, uh, get you know the modern equivalent of hearing aids. They're very limited in what people will spend on them. Uh, but they used to be a for-profit business, and they were subject to incredible abuse. So if you go back in the history of hearing aids, you'll see these <laughs> hilarious advertisements, you know, kind of advertising these things are going to do everything but make your toast and dance on the table. <laughs> uh, and so there was a suggestion made and, and, and laws were passed that said, no, these things should be regulated. And the way the regulations were passed were to essentially create a very onerous condition for people with hearing loss. So the hearing aids are expensive, to get one, you have to go to a trained audiologist who has to sort of pour the thing into your ear and fit it exactly for you, which means, you know, if the person no longer needs it or it, it gets passed on, it has no use. So you're spending all this money for something you can't resell. It has no recovery value. Um, you have typically you need one for both ears. <laughs> and so in the U.S., I think the median price is $2,300 each. So you're looking at a price tag most people can't afford. 
Um, and it's very limited. And there were only, at the time I wrote the book, there were only six manufacturers. Today, there are even fewer in that conventional hearing aid business. And most audiologists only did business with one or two. So let's say your condition was suitable for manufacturer number five. You would you wouldn't even have that option if your particular audiologist didn't do business with that manufacturer. So it was just a, uh, you know, a, a, an industry or a sector that was really, really not very innovative, very limited, not really doing a good job for potential customers. Now, on the customer side, this has huge consequences. At the time I wrote the book, the estimate was that only one out of every five people who might benefit from a hearing aid was actually able to get one. And so you've got this massive number of people who, you know, as baby boomers age, right, were the first rock concert generation. So hearing loss, unfortunately, many decades later is something we're <laughs> going to experience. So, you know, we have this huge demand or this huge potential demand, and yet it's too expensive, it's out of reach, it's too difficult. So one of the things I predicted in the book was that certainly in the U.S. and in various parts of the world, this has now been recognized as a major public health problem. And so in the U.S., there was a big movement, which subsequently was endorsed by Congress to say, what if we had developed an over-the-counter option for hearing aids? So just like glasses now, you can go into a, a pharmacy or a chemist's and, you know, you can get the it's one demeter correction or two or three or whatever. And if all you need is reading glasses, you sort of try them on in the store, you see which one works and you, you go to the till and you pay for it. Right? And what if we sold hearing aids that way? And of course, hearing is, is hearing is actually much more complex than vision because it, 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 it requires wiring in your brain to to figure out you know, what, what the adjustment is that's necessary. Um, but anyway, the we, Congress passed a law that basically said, you know, you've got to explore over-the-counter options. So what starts to happen as that starts to become a reality is that you now have the players who make other things, people stick in their ears to hear sounds, get very interested in this hearing aid business. Because if you think about it, a business that only has historic historically served one of, out of every five potential customers. There's a huge growth opportunity there. So we started to see uh, companies like Bose. They invented a thing called earphones, which are a little ungainly. They're this sort of loop device, but you adjust it on your phone, right? Then we see companies like Ergo, which uh, remove the whole hassle of fitting the hearing aid and putting it in your ear. It's a tiny little device that was based on fly fishing um, uh, fly fishing targets. Um, and then they sort of are, like, think of a tiny, tiny little badminton um, that actually goes in your ear, it expands uh, in your ear. So it fits securely in your ear. And then when you want to remove it, you just pull on a little string and, and take it out again. Uh, but it, it removes all that you know, implanting and, and car, you know, um, melting the model to put in your ear and the individual thing, you could now make them available for the mass uh, market. So Ergo today is actually a certified hearing aid, but down the road, it's very easy to see where that, that could be sold over the counter. They've solved so many of those problems that the traditional hearing aid people have not. The way you emphasize this whole story is that you make a really important point. You say don't invest in a big bang, but invest in the preparations, just like these, these companies did so that once the moment of clarity becomes clear, that is the moment to mobilize the troops, bring focus and bear down hard on preparing the organization for the post inflection world. I loved how you, fr you phrased that. But this is often where it's so difficult. People don't know when to pull the trigger. Oftentimes they go, let somebody else figure it out. That person figures it out. And all of a sudden, they're left with no client base. 
So one of the concepts that isn't, it's in the book, but not featured, uh, but which I've worked on a lot more since the book was published, is a thing I call tripwires, which is if you imagine some future event that you're preparing for, potentially, and then you work back in time and say what would have to be true before an event like that could happen. And then what you can do is you can create tripwires in your organization. So the idea would be if, let's just say, so let's take the hearing aid example, right? If we have at least five players in the market who are offering viable alternatives to the traditional model, that's a tripwire that says, if we're in that sector, you know, that's a signal that we should invest. That's a signal we should start to pay attention. That's a signal we should do something. And so what you can start to do is think ahead and think ahead about where would we want to take action if this future thing were to happen and create this tripwire. And so what it, 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 it like an explosive, right? So it, it's sort of, if this happens, wow, that's a signal we all agreed on, you know, eight months ago that if that happened, we would now be much more prepared to put this on the agenda. And what I think that does is it eliminates this lag that we all have when we encounter something that is a big shift in our environment. The initial response is often very slow. You know, it's, it's um, I mean, unless it's a threat to life or limb, it's often a, oh, well, I'll think about that. I'll get to that. I'll deal with it later. Rather than wow, you know, the thing that we said was a marker on the path to this possible future has now happened. We need to take action. And oftentimes, Rita, I'm sure you found this in your experience, like last time we spoke on the show, we talked about your experience with Nokia and that some of the engineers within Nokia, years before Apple ever even released an iPhone, they had already prototyped an iPad, they prototyped an app store, etc. So even when people do realize that tripwire has been sprung or has been triggered, they still don't take action. What's your advice for the people who work in those organizations, the Cassandras who are crying out that the future is bleak? Yeah, well, the trouble is that they're often technologists and researchers and people with an eye on where the larger trends are going. They're not politicians or communicators or influencers. And so one of the challenges, I think, for people like that is they really need to partner up, I think, with somebody who can take their insight and translate into something that is digestible for the people making decisions. So one of my favorite stories along these lines is of my dad, uh, and I feature him in the book. And, you know, brilliant research chemist, 100 patents to his name. I mean, just brilliant guy. And he went from Xerox, where he had been actually visiting the future. He'd been to Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Center. And I remember him coming home from a business trip, and this was probably in the 70s, and he was wearing one of these sort of outrageous 70s suits and a purple tie. <laughs> just, you know, what? <laughs> but, but he'd held a mouse. You know, he was telling me about computer mice and ethernets and visual interfaces. And I thought this was just science fiction, right? Um, anyway, he goes to Kodak uh, in 1980 and he takes a job there and uh, sits down across the desk from a guy named Thomas Whiteley, who ironically in later life studied dinosaurs, which I always thought was some <laughs> cosmic, <laughs> kind of a cosmic twist in the universe. But anyway, uh, so my dad sits across the desk with him and Whiteley saying, so tell me what you think is going to go on in the world of imaging and photography. And my dad lays it all out. He said, oh, it's going to be digital. Um, eight millimeter film is gone. It's going to be blah, 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 blah. You know, lays out the entire 
the flow of what actually happened. Um, and Whiteley kind of freezes, goes completely pale, and uh, basically says, you know, Wolfgang, go back to the research labs where you can do minimal damage. And uh, so I was talking to my dad, you know, a few months ago, and I said to him, well, didn't it bother you? bother me? What do you mean bother me? I said, well, you know, you saw the future so clearly and what that was going to do to Kodak. And you you were able to articulate exactly what was going to happen in the business. And had they taken action in 1980, if they, I mean, in 1980, they had, I think, the world's number two or three brand in the world. They mm. Kodak moments were something we all wrote about. We all knew what that meant, right? And here we are now, and they're bankrupt and irrelevant. And uh, he looked at me and he said, well, no, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, a researcher. Uh, he's management. He asked me my opinion. I gave him my opinion. And what he does with it is up to him. <laughs> and, and I find this pattern so often is that people that see uh, what's coming are often not the people who are able to communicate it, tell the story about it, mobilize the troops around it. Um, and yet they do have this clarity of vision. Brilliant. I, I'd find that so frustrating just thinking about your father that uh, if that was me and, uh, you know, in, in smaller ele elements, it has been me in the past. And I'm sure it's been the case for many of our listeners and you when you're telling an organization what's going to how it's going to unfold and they won't listen. It's just so frustrating. It's not that they don't listen. They listen. They listen very intently. They're often incredibly polite. They're just not going to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> There's a number of reasons for that. So I think in a lot of organizations, you don't you don't have an incentive plan for looking after the future. Um, you don't have compensation at the end of the year that says, oh, you made an investment in these four future facing things. Good on you. You know, you don't you don't have those incentive structures. And so, you know, I may tell you that your business is about to fold. But if you're getting rewarded on what you did in the fourth quarter of 2021, it's kind of an irrelevant piece of information. You make the point also in your previous book in the end of competitive advantage that many leaders actually just get incentivized on the past, really, they're getting incentivized on what's what maximizing the past and milking the cash cow as much as possible, rather than creating that future. And if they do take the risk on the future, they are actually risking their performance packages. Oh, yeah. So a great counter example is what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft, where half of his leadership team's compensation comes from what he calls a performance measures. So sales, you know, market share, whatever that is. Uh, but half of it comes from what they call power measures. And these are the leading indicators. And so in a world of uh, cloud services where usage, you know, if you're going to have a subscription service, usage is what really matters in terms of your profitability. And what Nadella's done is he said, you know, before we can have usage, customers have to enjoy our products. In fact, customers have to love our products. And so he's incenting his senior leaders on things like customer love. I mean, this is Microsoft. This is like a yeah. sea change in the culture there. Let's bring it back to this book because it's we're, we're by the way, we're only at the introduction here for our listeners. For those of you who have not read it, let's build on Andy Grove's observation that snow melts first at the periphery. I'd love if you would describe how agile, responsive organizations create fast horizontal flows of information so that decisions can be made quickly and responses to environmental challenges can be processed in real time. Here you use it, the example of Facebook and other social media platforms to animate your points. Well, let's start with the more positive examples. So the companies that I think do this well have mechanisms to pick up these weak signals from the periphery. So 
an example that I use in the book is the German metal services company Klockner. And uh, I did an interview with their CEO, Gisbert Ruhl, who said, you know, one of his concerns as he tried to get the company oriented to a digital agenda was all those layers of management in between himself as the CEO and the workers on the front lines. And what he did was instituted what he called non-hierarchical communication, which in this case was Yammer. And he taught the organization that if they wanted to communicate with him, anybody, I don't care if you're operating a forklift truck, you want to communicate with the CEO, you send a message. This is what's going on. This is what I see. These are some things that I think you might want to think about. These are some things that are really stupid and crazy. Um, and what he did at head office, which I thought was fascinating, was he had the, the feed of his Yammer feed inversed. So the more, the lower in in, in sort of hierarchical terms in the bureaucracy that you were, the higher your message was. Uh, so that when he paid attention to these flows of information, the thing he focused on first was the people least likely to be in his normal orbit. And I thought that was absolutely uh, brilliant. Now, the Facebook example to me, and remember the book came out in, well, the book was published in 2019. So a lot of this I was writing about in 2017, 2018, when the company was getting into all kinds of trouble with the European Union and, and various data privacy laws. And I said, look, you know, this business model that Facebook has is based on users being ignorant uh, of how their data is being used. I mean, people don't understand when you post that baby's picture on Facebook, you don't own it anymore. They do, and they can do whatever they want with it, basically, on uh, under current regulations. And it was very interesting to me to see the recent dust-up between Apple and Facebook. And all Apple wanted people to do was accept that their data, which you know, was going to be shared with Facebook if they accepted, uh, all, all Apple wanted to do was say people should be able to opt in or opt out of this kind of data sharing. And the very fact that Apple was asking people's permission sent Facebook into an absolute frenzy. They were taking a full page ads, you know, criticizing Apple's move in that direction, which to me basically says they're very knowingly using data without users' permission. And I think that's something that's not going to be the case forever. And, you know, here's the thing about seeing around corners and inflection points and regulations and institutions. Most institutional environments lag 10 to 15 years after the phenomena they are meant to regulate. So if you think about cigarette smoking, right, um, it took decades before scientists finally put together the compelling case that cigarette smoking and lung cancer were related. It took another 10 to 15 years before regulators began to say, you shouldn't sell cigarettes to people under 16 years old. You were going to put a tax on cigarettes to try to discourage the use. We recognize that you know, people that get ill from smoking-related syndromes put a burden on the health system. So we're going to make that and end, 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 end. But the point is it took decades for the regulatory infrastructure to catch up. And I think that's what we're seeing with social media now. So we're just seeing the very first of the you know, moves um, in, in various regulatory bodies, starting in Europe, not, not so much in the US, but to say there should be limits on how these data can be used. There should be restrictions on how free the flow of information is. Uh, we're just for the very first time starting to see the, um, in Australia, for example, the idea that Facebook can't just willy-nilly take news, which is paid for by news organizations, and use it to lure users on the site with no compensation at all. And so we're starting to now see these fault lines in that business model emerge. And I suspect in the next 
it, it doesn't happen quickly, but in the next two to five years, we'll start to see some of the worst practices of those business models be legislated away. And as you say, snow melts at the edges and we're starting to see the snow start to melt. And one of the things I thought about there when you were talking about regulation is that lag that you talked about, the 10 to 15 year lag. In some instances today, for example, with artificial intelligence, we don't have that luxury because the horse will have bolted. What are, you, what are your views on that? Horse is already bolted on, on the purveyance of personal data. I mean, the, this is right now. Um, and this is a perennial puzzle to me, which is, you know, Google can figure out where I am morning, noon and night and track me, you know, when I go to the post box, uh, but it can't figure out how to prevent spam calls. I mean, come on. <laughs> 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 uh, so, so yeah, I mean, and uh, very smart people like Amy Webb, who's a futurist, has written a fantastic book uh, called, what is it called? It's called The Nine, I think. Yeah, The Big Nine. I have it right on my bookshelf over there. Um, and one of the things she talks about is we are at risk of losing the race for artificial intelligence because authoritarian governments are much better at assembling these massive, massive data sets that they use to train their AI. And we're more fragmented about how we're going about it. Um, a second big concern with AI, and we're starting to, again, see the early stages of regulation of this, is things like facial recognition, uh, things like AI-enabled uh, credit decisions. And what we're learning is that the data sets these AI have been trained on, in many cases, reflect, you know, white male populations. They don't reflect a diversity of population. And so they do the wrong thing. They they make the wrong decisions. In fact, there's some there are some early cases in the U.S. where uh, people of color have been falsely accused because a facial recognition algorithm threw up the wrong face as being present at the scene of a crime or being part on a security camera or whatever. And so I think there are huge ethical and institutional implications of how we use these AI, because by definition, AI is going to assume that the future is like the past. And we know when an inflection point comes through, one of the things you can say with absolute certainty is the future is not like the past. Yeah, it's one of my huge concerns is that because I'm I don't feel in the slightest bit comforted that anybody in government is looking at regulation for these things, because those people who do know how to do it aren't working in governments, you know, so it's one of the real concerns that I have, certainly not in, in, in these parts of the world, Rita, anyway. But um, you offer eight practices that can help us spot snow melting at the edges, Rita, perhaps we can share some of them. You start with this idea of information flow that we already touched upon. Yeah, so a couple of others that are quite practical. Um, so William Gibson is a science fiction writer. And one of the things he said, I really take to heart, he said, you know, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And so the question I would ask myself, and I would ask your listeners is, where do you regularly go to visit the future? So do you go to conferences where new technologies are you know, being shown to the world for the very first time? Do you read publications that perhaps are focused on something that's just a bit beyond what you do day to day? Do you talk to people? Like, you know, if you want to know what the 10-year-olds of, uh, sorry, what the 20-year-olds of 2031 are going to be like, well, guess what? <laughs> they're all alive and well and living and they're here today and they're all 10 years old. So when do you talk to a 10-year-old? And, 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 and so forth. So how do you build into your routine practices that force you to come up against the future on a regular basis. And if you think about it, I'll go back to the story about my dad. Uh, 
that's what scientists do, right? They're always at the edge of possibility. When he went to Xerox Park, it was, wow, you know, and, and the, those people, and it's a fascinating story, right? Because Park was, the Palo Alto Research Center was set up by the top brass at Xerox who said, we really want to understand what the office and life of the future is going to be like as things go digital. And they invented a lot of what we completely take for granted today. But again, it's so far away from the business model that, that the bread and butter of the organization lived on that they just couldn't figure out how to bring those things to market. It took Apple and other companies to make a commercial proposition out of what Park had discovered. Um, so that's one practice. So go, go to where the future is beginning to make itself uh, felt. Uh, another practice, which uh, is very much in the news these days, is bring a diverse set of perspectives to your decision making. So don't just have people in the room making the decision, uh, you know, all the same schools, all the same background, all the same gender, all the same, you know, don't do that because what's going to happen is you're missing huge amounts of data that could be an input into your decision and you're potentially making some really big mistakes. So diversity of perspective. Another one that I really like is you want candor in your senior leadership team. And a, a story that I tell in the book is about Alan Mulally, who's a brilliant leader and had been responsible for essentially turning Ford around in the sort of 2006, 2008 timeframe. And uh, his management practice was once a week, he would have this meeting where everybody in his senior leadership team had to come in with their top five things they were trying to accomplish that week. And it was all color coded, you know, and the codes were green, right on it, I'm on track. Uh, yellow, well, I'm on track, but I kind of know what to do. And red was, I've got a problem and I don't know what to do about it. And of course, the first meeting, Ford's on track at that point to lose close to $17 billion that year. I mean, they were really in deep, dark trouble. <laughs> first meeting, they get together and they have, you know, and they, these guys, first, they don't want, they don't want to be there, right? <laughs> they have people that do that. They don't go to these meetings themselves and they have their data in front of them, right? And it's all green, everything's <laughs> green. And Alan looks at them and he says, my God, you know, is it our plan to lose $17 billion? Because if it is, we're right on track. And he said something I thought was incredibly valuable. He said, you can't manage a secret, right? You can't manage a secret. And so if we can get the information visible and in front of people and be honest about it, we can solve the problems. But we can't do that if we don't know the problems exist. And so some months later, um, the gentleman subsequently became the CEO of Ford, uh, kind of said, all right, all right, all right, I'm red on edge. And the launch of the edge was this small SUV, which was intended to really fill a critical gap in Ford's lineup. Um, it, it, you know, it had been hyped, the dealers were expecting it, the advertising budget was in place, and he did the right thing, which was stop the production line because there was some safety issue. But, you know, huge negatives all around it. And so he, he says that. And the whole room goes completely quiet and everyone's looking at Alan saying, what's he going to do? Does he really mean it about this red stuff or is, you know, kind of don't let the door hit you on the behind as you walk through. Um, and so what Alan does is he stands up, claps, great transparency, Mike, anybody got any ideas? And within, you know, five minutes, Somebody had a, an idea for what you could do to redirect the advertising money. Another person had a thought about how you could deal with the dealers. Another person had a technical perspective. Someone else was able to loan a couple of engineers to troubleshoot. 
anyway, you know, sort of 70% of the solution to that problem was architected in that next two or three minutes because they had all the collective wisdom and experience of the people in the room. And I think that's what you want to strive for, right? Which is if we can get these difficult bits of news in front of the right people, you can actually get to work solving the problem. And Alan talks about the joy of seeing the reds turn to yellows and the yellows turn to greens and that unfolds the whole plan. And in fact, he said to me, uh, I did interview him about this and he said, you know, if I'd come in and we were on track to lose $17 billion and everything genuinely was green, I would have been terrified. <laughs> the fact that there were so many reds meant there was a great opportunity. There's so many places we could go from there, but one that you talked about in the book that I thought was so valuable was this idea. And it's so ridiculous when you think about it over this part of the world. I've seen this in, in play where, say, for example, I work for an organization and I'm working in marketing. The marketing team will book all the outdoor, say, bus shelter advertisements or billboard advertisements on the route of that CEO for her route to work. So that she thinks, hey, man, we are everywhere, our advertising's everywhere. And I thought of that when you talked about the example of Gap. And when CEOs or leaders or C-suite executives get out of the building, oftentimes there's this whole parade put on for them. And it doesn't show the harsh reality of what a customer is experiencing. Absolutely. We see it everywhere. One of my favorite examples of this was uh, some years back now, but uh, T-Mobile. Uh, which at the time was was a, a wireless network here in the U.S., but it was famous for having the worst network. Like just you know, you you bought it because it was cheap, but it would drop your calls and it would <laughs> you know whatever. It was just like the worst network. And I happened to have a guy from T-Mobile in my class at Columbia. Uh, I teach a course on strategic growth, and he was in the course. And we were chatting at one of the breaks. You know, he said, "Oh yeah, I've got a senior exec from Germany because T-Mobile is owned by Deutsche Telekom, and uh, I've got one of the execs from Germany coming in, and he's going to be visiting, and this is what we're going to do, and everything." And so I said to him, "Well." What what happens when this guy comes to the U.S.? Because in Germany, the, the network's fantastic. I mean, the GSM network was well built out and it was all very, very reliable. I said to him, well, what happens when they come to the U.S. and they encounter the <laughs> horrible quality levels of your T-Mobile network? And he looks at me with eyes as round as saucers and he says, oh, that would never happen. We know. You know, we know when he lands at the airport, we know his route that he's going to take. We know where his office is. We know where his hotel is. We know all the we've got all the meetings that he's going to go to in the calendar. And we make sure those signals are you know great. <laughs> so here's this person coming to the U.S., getting on his wireless phone. He has no problems and he can't understand why all the customer complaints are piling up about the poor quality of their network. But I mean, people don't mean badly. You know, and the analogy I would use is if you've got company coming over for dinner, you tidy up the living room, you know, you you make it look nice. And that's the impulse people have when they're working in these organizations. So it's not venal. But the, the negative downside is it deprives executives in a decision-making capability of vital information. One of the practices you talked about that is very practical and useful, I thought, for our audience is a practice you call level skipping conversations. And this was a leader who uses an algorithm to choose employees at random and then randomly invites them for breakfast. I absolutely love this. Yeah, this was brilliant, I thought. So he sets aside a time every, I think it's every month, where it's a, a two to three hour block of time. And he has the computer, yeah, just go through the whole organization, randomly pick, I think it's 20 people, uh, pays their expenses, flies them in if they're, if they're, you know, 
not a, not able to have their divisions pay for that. So it could be somebody on a loading dock. It could be somebody in customer service. It could be somebody on a help desk. And yeah, gathers them together in a central location back when you could still do this. Um, and they have this go, let's go around the table. Let's look at how the company's showing up, uh, where you are. Let's talk about your job. Let's talk about what you see. Uh, and it's just absolutely fascinating. And, and I think it also sends a very powerful symbolic message, right? That not only are these folks able to share what they're seeing, but the CEO is actually listening and cares. And that, of course, has a ripple effect because, you know, even if you're not the person invited to the breakfast, the fact that you are now aware the CEO might be interested increases the possibility that you're going to say something or communicate something. Absolutely brilliant exercise. And speaking of CEOs who run great exercise like this, there's a couple now former CEO, of course, Jeff Bezos, and type one and type two decisions. And you talk about that to frame the great story of delegation by former eBay CEO. So um, type one decisions as and this is Bezos's distinction, type one decisions are decisions that are irreversible. They require a big commitment. They are in fact, an inflection point in the progress of an organization. Uh, and then they need a lot of careful deliberation. Type two decisions, on the other hand, are reversible. If you don't like, you, know, you walk through the door. If you don't like what you find, you walk back in. Um, they're typically not hugely risky. They're relatively inexpensive. And what Bezos observes is that as organizations mature, more and more and more decisions get put in that type one bucket and fewer are allowing people to feel empowered to you know, take action on their own. So at eBay, this was when John Donahue was the CEO there, and they were talking about refreshing the homepage. You know, and if you think about the homepage, right, and I remember talking to Meg Whitman about this years ago when she was still the CEO of eBay, and she said, you know, the homepage is like, like you are your seller's house, and you're talking about rearranging the furniture. They're not going to like it. <laughs> you have to be super careful about that. So Donahue and his team said, look, the page is aging. It needs an update. It needs to refresh. Now, you know, typical corporate scenario, what, what would you have done? You would have called in, I don't know, some consultancy, and they would have put together mountains of PowerPoint pages just to show you the pros and cons, and maybe they would have done tests and whatever. Uh, instead, this younger person that Donahue had hired as, uh, I think, director of director of web, de web design or digital or whatever, kind of saw this, said, ah, okay, I got it. Spent the next couple of hours recruiting a, a small group, I think it was 12, uh, of the best engineers in the company, said to them, well, let's do this thing, took them on a flight to Australia where they rented this sort of house that they were living in. They spent two weeks just heads down doing nothing but coding, came back with a prototype of the web page that subsequently became adopted. And so what they were able to accomplish by not faffing around with let's propose this thing, let's do a PowerPoint and let's get approvals uh, was a stunning advance in the progress of the web page without all the attendant corporate overhead. It's a fantastic story. And for those of our listeners listen to this and kind of go, ah, well, I'm not going to send my team down to Australia. There is no excuse, Rita, has you covered because also you mentioned, Rita, the story of Adobe's Kickbox. So the Kickbox program, I think is brilliant. It's, um, it's literally a red box. And inside the box is a, a candy bar and a Starbucks card because all innovation requires caffeine and sugar. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but it's also got instructions, a notebook. Uh, there's actually a, two separate notebooks. One's a regular notebook and one's labeled bad ideas um, and, and post-it notes, you know, some Sharpie markers. But what is the most important thing in the kickbox is a thousand dollar gift card. 
And if you are an employee, you can request anywhere in Adobe, you can request a kickbox and you can spend that thousand dollars on any kind of customer experiment or trial that you like. The only consideration is that you have to report back into their central database what your hypothesis was, what you learned and what what happened. Um, in 23 cases that I've been able to identify, the, the red box actually gave way to a blue box. Nobody will tell me what's in the blue box. <laughs> so <laughs> it's moved on to be a more significant uh, initiative for Adobe. But, you know, aside from did, did we get good ideas out of this process, I think a much bigger and much less discussed aspect of this is you're now teaching people about innovation. You're giving them some very rudimentary tools about here's what an innovator would do in your situation. And so you're spreading that capability, you know, even as you know, so the thousand dollars, you may spend that on something useful or it may not be end up being useful, but the capability is what you're really building. Let's move on to some of the indicators because you talk about lagging current and leading indicators. And I think these are so valuable. This part of the book is so valuable. You mentioned how data facts and lagging indicators can hamper innovation, Rita, where many managers pride themselves on being data driven, obsessed with hard numbers and fluent with the facts. But the difficulty with such an emphasis on facts is that unfortunately, facts are often a lagging indicator of what could potentially be important. By the time you are dealing with a fact on the ground, whatever led to it has already happened. Perhaps we might give some examples of these lagging indicators, Rita, because hearing these will send shudders down the spines of so many of our listeners who are corporate innovators, entrepreneurs within organizations, and often their ideas get killed because of the metrics enforced upon them. Absolutely. So a uh, return on investment by definition is a lagging indicator. You don't know when you're embarking on something new what your ROI is going to be. Um, most financial data are lagging. They're, you know, the outcome of some decision you made a long time ago. In fact, this is another place where Jeff Bezos has very famously been quoted as, as, as you know, an analyst congratulated him on the great quarter that Amazon had. And he said, well, I always say thank you. But in my head, I'm thinking, you know, that is such an idiotic thing to say, because <laughs> the quarter we just had was baked three years ago in decisions that we made three years ago. So another Here's an interesting example, a very practical example of, of this kind of thing. So I have a, a colleague who was the CEO of a furniture uh, company, a furniture retailer, and showed me a report done by one of the big major consulting firms about this furniture thing. Right, um, And the whole report, which cost a million dollars, was about where you should display the mattresses versus the pictures, how you could consolidate the warehouse, what the sort of personnel deployment should be at peak traffic times. I mean, it was all a beautiful piece of analysis and gorgeously presented. The PowerPoint would knock your socks off. It was great. But they're not dealing with, okay, I'm a physical furniture retailer in a world where companies like Wayfair are teaching consumers that furniture is a direct-to-consumer item that you should be able to go on the internet and browse and watch. And two days later, it shows up on your doorstep and gets put where you want it. You know, it's not they're not even contemplating that because they're so focused on the lagging indicators. And I think this is where, you know, we spend a ton of money and time. And I mean, it was a beautifully done report, so I'm not critical, but it accepts as the premise that the business model is not changing. And if you depart from that premise, a lot of the things in that analytical PowerPoint driven toolkit are much less valuable 
than than they are today. And so I think this is a beautiful example of a leader who's trying to do the right thing. Let's get the information, but the premise is wrong. <laughs> you know, what I'm trying to figure out is what is what is the furniture store of you know 2026 20, look like, and what they're giving me is a better furniture store for. 20 I often feel so empathetic for the Cassandras within the organizations, those people who know what the future is going to bring. But at this stage, their ideas totally get stillborn because they can't communicate it as one, but then they can't also frame it in the lagging indicators and it kills so many great ideas. But lagging indicators is one thing, Rita, but current indicators is another. And I'd love if you give the example of energy companies basing management measurement on centralized grids versus a renewables and decentralized future. This is a great example of this. And at the time that I wrote the book, General Electric had not yet um, been publicly uh, at its comeuppance with their long-term investments. And in what they did was they bought Alstom's power uh, generation business, uh, more, more appropriately power generation services business uh, for a huge multiple uh, back in 2015, 2016. And in the minds of the General Electric managers, so, so the business model is this, that they would provide services and other kinds of um, activity to providers of power who would run these huge power plants. And these service contracts are 20, 30 year contracts. Um, and they thought when they invested in 2015, 2014, that um, that this was going to be a business which you know would continue um, for a long time. In fact, you could hear the people at GE talk about real power as opposed to you know renewables and da 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 da. Well, meanwhile, at that exact moment, currently, current current indicator wise, the governments of both Norway, Denmark, Finland had all gone to their um, power companies and you know companies like uh, what well, used to be called Statoil, now it's called Equinor in Norway, as an example, and said, look, as a matter of public policy, we want you guys figuring out renewables. And so what happened was, uh, and this happened definitely in Norway, definitely in Denmark, uh, to some extent in Finland, that huge amounts of R&D and actual effort were going into renewables, which meant the price per kilowatt hour of power that was generated from renewables, if you looked at the price, because the barrier was always, it was too expensive and the batteries were not good enough. And so fossil fuel for the same amount of investment produced much more energy. But what you started to see was the price of kilowatt hours for those, those renewables coming down. And so back to GE, so they would go to their power plant managers and say, we'd like to sell you this service contract. And the power plant managers went, a 25 year to 30 year bet at the prices you want on fossil fuel, we're not so sure. Um, and so what ended up happening was a catastrophic drop off in the business they thought was going to be just an easy, you know, sign here and renew for another 25 years. And it's completely changed. So what you had at a broader scale, leaving GE behind, what you had at a broader scale was this assumption on the part of all power companies that you have a centralized grid, there's some centralized form of power generation, and then that gets distributed out to power consumers. Well, what's happening now is people all over the grid are now able to generate energy through solar, through wind, through other things. And they're now selling energy back to the grid. This is a completely different business model. And a lot of the energy providers are finding it very difficult to figure this out. Another interesting thing that's happening right now is there are whole parts of the world where they don't have an energy grid. And instead, what they're doing is they're doing distributed power generation. So solar, for example, Solar gets given to a household, uh, a solar panel or so. They it, it feeds a battery. The battery doesn't last 24 hours. 
but it's better than nothing, which is the current alternative. And so rather than have to build out a whole comprehensive energy grid, which has all kinds of vulnerabilities, uh, they're able to do you know half the job, let's say, uh, at a much lower cost for giving access to a much larger population of people than would be necess- would be possible if you were forced to, to actually build out a grid in the traditional sense. That's a great example, and, and one which applies to so many industries, this decentralization of so many things. Like we've seen it with media, you mentioned that earlier on, where you would have had to, to broadcast like we are now, had to go through a big, massive media company. But now because of all these tools, it's all decentralized. And, you know, I, I often think about that's what one of the remits of perhaps public public broadcasters should be, where in a way they provide the toolkit for others to create and then maybe they harness some of the revenue that comes from those creations as well this idea of harnessing the decentralization rather than fighting against it but moving on from from the indicators to from current indicators to leading indicators these are those indicators that represent things that are not yet facts in your business they have the potential to lead to facts later on but at the moment you're looking at them they are only suppositions conjectures and assumptions they are often qualitative rather than quantitative. They are often told as narratives and stories rather than meticulous PowerPoint charts. And for that reason, executives are often wary about basing important decisions on them. This can be the folly of the highest order in a world of strategic inflection points because the leading indicators are where the ideas about the future are about to be found. As I read this, even now, I feel a huge sadness because these is the leading indicator graveyard is full of fantastic ideas but perhaps you'll share a little bit about leading indicators and how to embrace them if you are a leader so leading indicators as as you mentioned are often qualitative they take the form of stories reasonable people can disagree about what they mean but that doesn't mean you should ignore them <laughs> you know what happens i i find all the time is you have these conversations people go well, that's a really interesting idea but we're not actually going to do anything about it because it's not on our doorstep. So let's take one that's happening right now uh, in the world of telehealth. Um, and you know, historically, why do we need doctor's offices? Well, we need doctor's offices because uh, there's equipment that's expensive and it's got to be installed in a doctor or a dentist or whatever. And it's not cheap enough for an ordinary person to buy. And an ordinary person doesn't need to use it often enough to make it worthwhile. And so we have this centralized model. So you go to the doctor's office and that's where you get your blood pressure taken and you know injections if you need them. If it's a dentist, you have the heavy equipment that does the drills and all that. So what's happening with technology and just as with media, right, which is becoming distributed, well, equipment, medical equipment, medical devices are now becoming inexpensive enough that they can be distributed. Now, not all, right? But for example, if you want to take your blood pressure, if you want to do an EKG, if you need a a blood prick for certain kinds of analytical testing, those things are now cheap enough that they can be done at home. So that's the first kind of interesting leading indicator. So the proportion of things that must be done in a doctor's office is is smaller. Secondly, we have the advent of this kind of thing, right? Uh, very high quality communication uh, through virtual means, which means the consultation, the conversation does not necessarily have to take place over a desk in a doctor's office. And in an era of pandemics, you probably don't want it taking place over a desk in a doctor's office. Uh, so you can do it this way. Third, uh, you have the ability now with big data and advanced analytics to take all that data about what's going on at a very granular level and make meaning out of it. 
So all that information that used to be in paper files in some doctor's office is now available electronically in a very distributed manner. So if I'm crunching the numbers, I could say, hey, you know, there's an increase in respiratory distress in a certain part of the city, let's say. And then you could work backward and say, well, what's causing that? And maybe it's not a medical thing at all. Maybe it's poor quality of buildings, which means children are living with mold, which means that a certain proportion of them are going to develop asthma as a consequence. And so you can get much smarter about getting to causes. So stories about the future, which ones of them are going to come true, we're not sure, but certainly you'd want to be alert to them. So now let's switch over to my buddies in the pharmaceutical industry. Well, not so much in other parts of the world, but certainly in the U.S., the business of getting doctors to prescribe um, prescription medicine is, you know, pretty girls visiting doctor's offices with lots of swag, right? Getting them to try to write (laughs) prescriptions. Well, I said to this pharmaceutical client of mine, I said, well, what are you going to do when there's no doctor in the office? How are you going to reach them? And they look at me with these round eyes and they said, well, we're not sure. I said, well, what are your reps doing right now in the middle of pandemic? Um, well, they're they're working from home. I said, well, what are they doing? Not much is the answer. And so my feeling is, you know, if you took this early warning seriously, what you'd be doing right now is taking all those reps and teaching them how to become more digitally savvy. So maybe they learn about, um, you know, connecting with doctors via text message. Maybe they learn about creating patient local resource groups using Nextdoor or something. I mean, I'm not sure what the action implications are, but you would want them doing something right now because the old model's not coming back. And then one last thing about telemedicine is um, what we're starting to see now is the emergence of apps and websites dedicated to very specific disease conditions. So an example would be, there's um, a website called The Cove, which is dedicated to migraine sufferers. And if you are a person who has very serious migraines, this is a debilitating condition, but there aren't very many of you in a typical doctor's uh, practice. And so, you know, if there's three out of a hundred people that ever have a migraine and only one of those three ever has a debilitating migraine, you know, yes, you're going to get treated, but you know, you're a small blip on a larger screen. Whereas this website Cove, all they do is that. So they've got a user community, they get people their pills, they they have users share you know, information and advice about different ways they do things. And it's interesting, if you go to their site and look at it, what the users are valuing is not the quality of the medical information they're getting. They make the assumption that's standard, right? That, 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 that you're not differentiating on the quality of care. Where you're differentiating is the quality of customer service, the responsiveness. I get my pills right on time. They call me up and check on me. You know, I got a great idea from a fellow migraine sufferer about what to do when they first start. You know, whatever the thing is, that's where the value lies. I thought we'd just at a very high level. There's, I mentioned the brilliant titles and congratulations on these titles as well. I love them. One of the ones that will jump out to our listeners is the defanging of the organizational antibodies. So those, the, the corporate immune system, which, you know, and you recognize this as well, that they're doing their job by managing today. And you're, you essentially are this new strange DNA that's creeping into their corporate body, trying to change it. So you're going to be rejected. But what is your top advice then at the top highest level for defanging the organization? 
Well, um, in fact, this is a project I'm working on with the client right now, which is a heavy-duty operating company, and they want to inject some of this new business model, new thinking into their DNA, as it were. Uh, and it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. So I think a couple of places to start. I think the first place to start is to recognize that when you are operating in a world of enormous predictability, a lot of our conventional metrics for management make a lot of sense. Present value decision making, as an example, looking for return on investment, uh, putting together a 10-year plan. Um, when you're operating in a space which has very high ratios of assumptions that you have to make relative to the knowledge that you have, the rules are completely different. There, it's about very small investments to learn. There, it's about option value rather than present value. So what's the value of your right to make a future choice? Um, and I think where I have a, a, a metric, which I call the innovation proficiency scale, and it starts with like level one. <laughs> level one organizations are you know, regulated energy monopolies, right? You have a conversation with a customer once a year, and that's your, your regulator. <laughs> you negotiate about rate increases or whatever. <laughs> and the rest of the year, what you're all about is operations, right? That's level one. Now, level eight would be, say, an Amazon or something where not only is innovation a day-to-day -day practice, but it's taken for granted. People know what to do. You know, if I have an idea, I know where to go to get resources for it, and, 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 and. And so somewhere on that journey, uh, you go through sort of level two is what I call innovation theater. And we've all seen that, right? You innovation boot camps, and it's all about the idea and post-it Post notes, notes on the wall. It's <laughs> oh, fabulous. Right? Um, but, it, but there's no follow through. So as you build innovation capability, what you're really building is the ability to do three things. Get great ideas. Of course, that's important. But, you know, that's not the rate limiting step. Human beings are ingenious creatures. We have more ideas in a day than we'll ever be able to come up with a plan to do something about. So ideation, then incubation. How do you go from the idea to something that is marketable? And then acceleration, which is hard as well, because acceleration is that phase change in between you know, make a little, try a little, learn, blank sheet of paper. Oh, we'll just give this a shot. Two, I'm sorry, legal and compliance need to be welcome. You need to get HR policies in place. You need, I mean, you know, it's a growing up kind of thing. And each of those phases has a different skill set and a different um, uh, technique and a different uh, path. So a lot of companies say to me, where do I start? And the answer is actually pretty simple. If you're serious about building an innovation proficiency or an innovation capability in your firm, the best place to start is with your CEO and C-suite's agenda. If they think it's important, people will start to take action to make it real. If it's not on their agenda, forget it, abandon all hope. And so my rule of thumb is if you really, really mean it about discovering new markets, discovering new business models, discovering new ways of doing things, make it item one, two, or three on your CEO agenda. And if it's not one, two, or three, you're not serious. Fantastic. And I thought a nice way to finish, Rita, would be turning the camera to ourselves. So a focus on us individually. And you do this in your first book as well, in the end of Competitive Advantage, is that organizations are just a mass of individuals, and the individual needs to change in order for the organization to change. But also, the job marketplace is changing dramatically. And you quote here, Howard Stevenson from the Harvard Business School. I love this quote. You said, very few people see inflection points as the opportunities they are, catalysts for changing their lives, moments when a person can modify the trajectory he or she is on and redirect it in a more desirable direction. I absolutely love that quote. 
because you you talk about seeing around corners in our own lives perhaps you'd share a word on this oh of course so a couple of observations um in many cases the thing we're trying to avoid you know the, the negative outcome we're trying to avoid uh can actually release very positive things and so i talk about the positive aspects of some kind of failure so you know you don't get the promotion or you lose a job or you have a falling out in your personal life and in some cases you know it does produce a negative outcome but it often frees up the opportunity to sort of unfreeze and and rethink and reevaluate what you're doing and that can lead to a very positive uh, trajectory so a couple of techniques that i think make a lot of sense no matter where you are in in uh, in your journey is uh to write uh, an article and this is for business people it would be an article in say business week or fortune or the, the ft uh, and you write an article about yourself from five years from now and uh you know what did you accomplish what are you known for what's your set of values uh and what are the decisions you made along the way that got you there and so if it's an admiring article then and then you can start again this principle of think about the future and now work backward what would that suggest uh for today and uh, rick goings who's the former ceo of tupperware i was speaking to him just last week and he had a phrase that is much shorter than what i've just said but i think it it is so profound he said are you building your resume or are you writing your epitaph? Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. And Rita, I'm, I'm, I have an ending quote that I, I usually finish on a quote from the author's book. And um, I have one lined up here. And as I'm doing that, perhaps you'll think of one that you want to leave our audience with, the audience of changemakers, CEO, C-suite, even students out there who are trying to figure out, like your daughter, figure out what the world will unfold like in front of them. So I'll, I'll let you think about that. But before we do, where can people find out? Because I know you have multiple, you, you are a polymath of many ways, and you have multiple uh, organi organizational efforts that you work with organizations with, you do keynotes, etc. Where can people find you to find out about that work? Well, a good place to start is my website, which is uh, very cleverly named RitaMcGrath.com. <laughs> so that's pretty easy to remember. Uh, I'm on just about every social channel. Um, so I've got um, a YouTube uh, channel. I've, I'm on Twitter. I've got Instagram. I've got um, LinkedIn. So those are all places you can find out about me. In terms of what I do to work with companies, so clearly talks and keynotes uh, are, are typical what the way people like me would interact. But we're also starting to build some tools, so some digitally enabled tools to help people with the innovation process. And the piece that I'm really honed in on right now is, is that bit in the middle, you know, not the idea generation and not the actual execution, but how do I do that incubation? How do I learn? And we've got a process, we're in the process of building for installing that capability in a company, which I'm super excited about because for years I've been frustrated that a lot of my work, you know, it's books, it's articles, it's ideas, it's insights, it's great. But then how do you actually make this work in your company? And so that's something I'm spending a lot of time working on these days. And so the company that I'm doing that under is called Valise, V-A-L-I-Z. And it's got a, a website now. And uh, we're just building out the um, the offering, even as we speak. It's moving into production next week, I'm told. So that's Fantastic. super exciting. But RitaMcGrath.com is probably a good place to start for, for me. Fantastic. And I'll, I'll share links to that. So Rita, here's my ending quote from your work, which is just fantastic. I can't recommend this enough. Th these are books that you must own, Rita McGrath's work, any papers that Rita writes, etc. One of my favorite writers in innovation and change. 
This is the quote. The progress of inflection points, moreover, is not linear. They proceed in fits and starts, and while they are emerging, it is normal for reasonable people to disagree about their importance and likely impact. The great entrepreneurs and innovators, however, don't just allow an inflection point to happen to them. They connect emerging possibilities, deepen customer insights, and explore new technologies to spark the changes that can get them and keep them on the top. I absolutely love that. And I thought it was a fitting way to end from my perspective today. Rita, what about you? What's your parting message for our audience? I think the power of creating your own future comes from learning. And so I would encourage your listeners to be very proactive about that. What, what are some things I learn today? And what would I like to learn uh, in the future? I think very often we just bounce from thing to thing. We're not very conscious of our learning. So, you know, get in the habit of formulating a hypothesis, coming up with some way of testing it, and then drawing some conclusions. I think that would be a really good practice to start. You can start that this afternoon. Beautiful author of Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita McGrath, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Aidan. And I'm looking forward to when I can actually get to Ireland again. Likewise. And we'll do, we'll do one in person over uh, some type of beverage anyway. That would be lovely. <laughs>